Hello, and welcome to A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall, a ministry of Calvary Chapel San Juan Capistrano. Open your Bible and join us as together we seek to grow in our daily walk with the Lord. In Romans chapter 9, we began a new section within this letter that focused on and answered questions concerning the nation of Israel. It began in chapter 9 with their election. According to his foreknowledge and sovereign plan, God selected the nation of Israel to be his chosen people. They had a unique relationship with God, unlike any other nation. He also gave to them his word. In addition, he made several promises to them and gave them several covenants. Most importantly, from the nation of Israel came the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 10, we saw that even though they had been given these undeserved and divine privileges, they took them for granted. They began to lean upon their heritage, upon their traditions, their religious practices as a means of righteousness and salvation. And when their Messiah came, many of the Jews rejected him and crucified him. They attempted to approach God on the basis of their own righteousness rather than faith in the finished work of Christ upon the cross. From a merely human perspective, one might assume that the Lord was done with Israel or that divine long-suffering had finally run out and they were to be cast aside, that their future looked abysmal at best, and the covenantal promises that were made to Israel were now invalidated. But that brings us to the 11th chapter. As the Apostle Paul sees a much brighter future for the nation, and he posed a question that was on the minds of his readers in verse 1, and then he answers the question by providing powerful testimonies to prove his point. First, the question in verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? And then the answer, certainly not. To rephrase the question, we would say, is God done with Israel? Or to state it another way, have all the blessings that were promised to Israel now been passed on to the church? Have they been replaced. And once again, Paul answers his question by using the most emphatic, dogmatic response in the Greek language in two words, certainly not. It doesn't get any stronger than that. In Psalm 94 verse 14, it says, the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. In Psalm 106, verse 44 through 45, and for their sake, he remembered his covenant 
and he relented according to the multitude of his mercies. He also made them to be pitied by all those who took them away captive. God makes it very clear throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament that there is a future for the nation of Israel. To prove his point, Paul uses several powerful testimonies. The first testimony is his own testimony. He says in verse 1, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul uses his own personal testimony as a witness to God's faithfulness to the nation. He begins by saying, if you think for some reason that God is done with the nation of Israel, just look at my life. Paul's conversion served as a powerful testimony that God can bring his plans to pass. In his other epistles, Paul writes about his testimony before he came to Christ. He writes about what he was like before he was saved. In writing to the church in Galatia, in chapter one, he said this, you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. The the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that Paul, who was formerly Saul of Tarsus, was breathing in and breathing out threats against the church putting people in prison, putting people to death for their faith in Christ. In writing to Timothy in his first epistle, in chapter one, he said, although I was formally, past tense, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. This is what I used to be like, Paul is saying. But then in 1 Timothy chapter one, verse 16, he then talks about God's purpose in all of this. He says, however, for this reason, I obtain mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul's testimony was powerful, and when he shared his testimony, it was as if he felt that his own personal conversion was a foreshadowing of others in the nation of Israel who would come to faith just as he did. It was as if he was saying, if God can save someone like me, then he can save anyone. Can I encourage you this morning, folks? Never underestimate the power of your personal testimony of what Jesus has done in your life. Don't be ashamed, don't be afraid to share that. People may deny many things that you say. They may try to refute the arguments that you present, but the fact is you are a living epistle known and read by all men. Your very life speaks volumes. You may be the only Bible that somebody ever reads. They can't argue with a changed life, especially if they knew you before and they knew you now. They may be able to deny this or deny that, but they can't deny the change that the Spirit of God has made within your life, thus your testimony is powerful. Just tell people what Jesus has done. You remember when the demoniac was delivered and put in his right mind? Jesus sent him out, and he went out everywhere telling everyone the good things that the Lord had done for him. That's it. Just telling people what Jesus has done 
for you. Paul's testimony was powerful. That's the first witness, that God's not done with Israel. Look at Paul's testimony. Another witness that Paul brings to light, and that is this, Israel's history. We have Paul's testimony, but secondly, he points to Israel's history. Look at verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. As he had done repeatedly throughout this epistle, Paul reaches back to Old Testament scripture to illustrate and prove New Testament truth. He alludes to 1 Kings chapter 19 during the days of Elijah. In 1 Kings, we find at this point, this was perhaps the lowest time in the history of the nation of Israel. Wicked King Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel were ruling in Israel. Together, they led the nation into the worst forms of idolatry in the worship of the false god, Baal. Elijah was then called upon by the Lord to stand before the king and declare that it would not rain for the next three years, except at his word. After three years, Elijah, having been in hiding, was called upon again, this time to confront the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And the false prophets were to build an altar to their false god, Baal, and Elijah would repair the altar built for God. And they would prepare their sacrifices, and they would both pray. And the God that answered by fire from heaven would be the one true God that the nation would serve. After hours of attempting to summon a God that did not exist, the prophets of Baal gave up. Elijah then prayed, and God answered by fire. And at that moment, the people declared the Lord, he is God. They returned back to him. And then Elijah put to death the prophets of Baal, and then he prayed, and the drought ended. Following this temporary revival and spiritual victory, Jezebel wrote a letter to Elijah. And in that letter, she threatened to put him to death before the day was done. And this powerful prophet was suddenly overcome with fear, and he ran for his life, and he hid within a cave. And then the Lord met him there in that cave, and he said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah's response is what Paul quotes here. I alone am left. It's just me. There's nobody else to stand for you. I'm by myself. No one else is with me. And the Lord, in that moment, corrected his melancholy messenger, and he said to him, I have 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee. In other words, God said to Elijah, Elijah, you're not the only one. I have a remnant of people who have remained faithful to me. Folks, God 
always has a remnant. Always. They may be the minority, but God has a remnant. Even in the times when Israel was as idolatrous as they could be, that you would think God would cut them off and judge them immediately. As you look back at their history, Paul points out, even then, God had a remnant. And if God had a remnant back then, he's saying to those reading this epistle, he still has a remnant today. He still has a remnant. He's not done, in other words, with the nation of Israel. So you have Paul's testimony, which is powerful. You have Israel's history, which is insightful. It gives evidence to the fact that God's not done with him. But then there's another testimony. And this time, he points to God's grace and mercy. Look at verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Verse 6. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Untangle that, if you will. (laughs) Sounds like a riddle. But let me explain. This remnant that Paul referred to related to God not on the basis of trying to keep the law to be made righteous or to earn salvation. They related to God the same way that the Gentiles did, the same way that you and I relate to him, on the basis of his grace. Folks, when it comes to righteousness, a right standing with God, when it comes to salvation, it is all of God's grace. It is not of your works or mine. We are saved by grace Through faith, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I don't come to God on the basis of my work. I come to God on the basis of Christ's work on my behalf. It is a work of grace, something I could not earn or deserve. I can only receive grace, God's riches at Christ's expense made available to you and to me. Grace. That's how they related to him. This remnant, it's a work of grace. When it comes to righteousness, when it comes to salvation, grace and works are mutually exclusive. Now, having said that, the Bible does say that faith without works is dead, James tells us. What did he mean by that? Is he contradicting Paul? No. I do not perform good works to be saved. I engage in good works because I am saved. It is a natural byproduct of someone who has been born again to bear fruit. And some of that fruit is good works for the glory of God. I don't do it to earn salvation. I have salvation. And that's why I involve myself with it. It's often the evidence of a genuine conversion. Your faith is able to be seen and discerned by the way that you live. But when it comes to salvation, it is a work of God's grace. And even serving the Lord, that also is a work of God's grace in and through us. So the first question, is the Lord done with Israel? The response, certainly not. Look at Paul's testimony Look at Israel's history, and don't forget God's grace and God's mercy. Not getting what you deserve and getting what you don't deserve. Mercy and grace, I'm thankful for both. 
But then Paul presents another question that was on the minds of his readers, found in verse 7 in two words. It says, what then? What then? If God isn't finished with the nation of Israel, and there is a remnant of Jewish believers who have trusted in Christ as their Savior, as their Messiah, what then happened to the rest who did not believe? What's going to happen to them? It's a fair question. And Paul answers that question. First of all, he says some of those who did not believe, who rejected the gospel, they became calloused in their hearts. Look at what it says in verse 7. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. It's a word for callous. Some of your translations may say hardened. Same word, calloused. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, to this very day. Metaphorically, it's a picture of a heart becoming dull. It's actually the same word that is used in speaking about the reaction of the unbelieving Pharisees in Mark's gospel, the third chapter, after Jesus healed the man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. They were unbelieving. Even though the evidence was literally in front of their eyes. They saw the man healed right in front of them, and rather than believe it, they chose not to believe it. Not because they didn't see it or the evidence wasn't clear. They just said, we, we don't believe it. They turned from it. Their hearts became dull. Even though all of the facts were there, all of the evidence was in front of them, they chose not to believe. It's also a word that Paul uses in writing to the Ephesians to describe unconverted Gentiles. He said they walk in the vanity of their own mind. They have their understanding darkened. They're alienated from the life of God because of the blindness, there's the word, blindness of their heart. They're callous. They won't receive it. You know, when I was a teenager, many years ago, my father gave me my first guitar. And it, it was electric. It had to be. I mean, you have to have... I just wanted to rock, you know. And so, you know, I, I didn't know any chords, but it came with a chord book. And so, you know, you try to figure out how chords, they show you where to put your fingers. And when you begin to place your fingers on those strings that are metal, it hurts. It hurts. But you power through. And over time, calluses develop on your fingers to where you don't feel it anymore. Just time and, you know, keep keep going, keep doing what you've been doing. Eventually, you get calluses on your finger and you don't feel it any longer. This is what happened to those in Israel who did not respond to the love and to the appeal of God. They heard it, they heard it, they kept rejecting it, kept rejecting it, and over time, they just became callous. They didn't feel it anymore. They didn't respond to it. They wouldn't receive it. It had no impact on them any longer. And that's the same thing that happens to people today. God makes his appeal of his unconditional love in the gospel presentation. The gospel can be preached time and time again, but if a person goes on in his or her own way long enough, rejecting it, you know what happens? They just become callous to it. I've heard that before. I've heard it lots of times. I don't believe it. If you continue in sin long enough, you no longer will feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit either. 
You no longer sense the pain of what you're doing or that you're causing other people. And you're not concerned about where you're headed and the destination of where that broad road is ultimately going to lead you. It's not leading you to God. It's leading you farther away from him to eternal separation from him. In addition to being calloused, those who rejected the gospel became unaffected by it. Paul says here, just as it is written, again, he's quoting Old Testament here, God gave them, has given them a spirit of stupor. It meant that they were unaffected by the offer of salvation, eyes that they couldn't see, ears that they couldn't hear to this very day. And then he quotes here from the Psalms and what David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they don't see and bow their backs always, bow down their backs always. Paul declares this hardening, this callousness begins to grow to a point where they are just, not just callous, but not affected. They don't care. And eventually, if you continue in that way, you can get to the place where you are compl- you're unresponsive. You're unresponsive. I don't know where the line is where a person can cross where they don't believe and God honors the decision that they've made and they won't believe. Not because the evidence isn't there, not because they didn't have opportunity, but they will not respond and God honors the decision that they make. When Paul talks about what David said from Psalm 69, he's giving us this picture of men sitting down at a table and feasting comfortably. They come to a banqueting table with a false sense of security. We have our traditions. We have our religious practices. We have Abraham's blood coursing through our veins. We are the chosen people. We don't need to live right. We don't need to trust in Christ. We're good. We're at the table. But the problem is they live with the self-satisfaction and false sense of security. They have all of the outward ceremony and no inward reality. You're at the table, but it hasn't done anything to change your life. You're trusting in the fact that you're at the table, and you have this, and you've done that, and this is your way. One of the most tragic things to see for me as a pastor is people trusting and leaning upon things that cannot save them. Counterfeits of salvation. And the more they come to the table with those false concepts and feed upon them, the more deceived and blinded and callous they become and they eventually get to the place, as David says here in the Psalms, they bow down their backs always. It's a picture of slavery. They become slaves. Jesus said, whoever commits sin becomes a slave of sin. And it's cruel bondage, friend. It promises freedom, but it brings bondage. And yet Jesus is the one that can free you. The Bible says who the Son sets free is free indeed. There may be some here today that you're bound in sin. How do you know if you're in bondage to sin? I'll tell you how you know. You keep going back to it. You keep going back to it and justifying it and repeating it and repeating it and repeating it and you are stuck in a cycle of repetitive sin and let me just pull the blinders off for a second and say this, You're in bondage. But let me also say, Jesus is a great liberator and he wants to free you today from that. And he can. He can liberate you. He can free you. Well, I've tried and I could. You need his help. You have heaven's resources 
And heaven has enough power and resources to free you from what you can't free yourself from. And so here they are, living in this false sense of security. But then another question comes up. A third question. And that is this. Was there being set aside, these calloused, unaffected individuals who rejected the gospel, now set aside, is it permanent? That's a question. Is it permanent? Is it judgment or is it discipline? That, those are two very important questions and two very different things. Is this discipline, them being set aside, or is it ultimate, final judgment? Is it permanent? Paul answers that question in verse 11. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? There's the answer again, certainly not. When he says, have they stumbled um, that they should fall, the word literally means to fall away and then to apostatize. Are they beyond God's grace? Are they beyond God getting a hold of them? And here comes the final testimony, at least in this section, that Paul presents. We've had Paul's testimony. We've had Israel's history. We've had God's grace and God's mercy that he's not done with Israel. Here's one more testimony, and that is this, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. He's still at work. Look at what it says. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now, think about that. Paul is talking about the sovereign plan of God. It's so tragic. They've turned away. They, they're, they're callous. They're unresponsive. Oh, no. What, what's going to happen? God says, let me just, through Paul, let me tell you what I've done. What I've done, the fact that they've been set aside, you know what's happened? Through their fall and through their failure, the door of the gospel has opened up to a completely different group of people. Well, who's that? Oh, I don't know. People sitting here. Gentiles. You and me. He came to his own, his own did not receive him, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. We didn't have right to that. We had no access to the covenant promises given to Abraham and his descendants, but the fact that there was those that turned away, it opened up the door for the Gentiles to be saved. That was always part of God's plan. This was no surprise to God. He was sovereignly working all of this out. We see it one moment at a time. We think, this is tragic. God sees it from beginning to end and says, this is part of my plan. I'm going to use this for good. The Gentiles are now going to be saved. And Paul says, think about this. If their fall and their failure brought salvation to the Gentiles, think about what's going to happen when they come back to the Lord in their fullness. I'll tell you what's going to happen. The Bible tells us the kingdom of God is going to come to the earth. Jesus in his second coming is going to come and establish his kingdom. He's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. The Bible says the government is going to be upon his shoulders. He's going to be in charge. He's going to rule from the throne of David. And his kingdom is going to last forever. That's what's coming. So when the fullness comes and they return, when the fullness of the Gentiles has ended, when God's done with his work to the Gentiles, and now the Holy Spirit directs his attention primarily to the Jews, man, there's going to be an amazing revival among Jewish people. It's going to be awesome. God's not done. Thanks for joining us today for A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall. You'll find us online at adailywalk.org. That's a good place for resources to help you grow in your daily walk. If you'd like prayer or have questions or comments you'd like to share with us, our email is adailywalk at gmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 877 242 0828. 
That's 877-242-0828. To watch today's message again or any message you may have missed in the series, download our free app. Simply search CCSJC. Be sure to stay tuned with Pastor John on Instagram at John P. Randall and on Twitter at PJRandall7. Make sure to join us next time when we'll again open the Word together, seeking to apply God's truth to your daily walk.